Uh, good morning to each and every one. I invite you to turn with me once again in your Bibles to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, as you're turning there, I'd like to read a brief story that C.J. Mahaney shares in one of his books. I can't remember which book, so don't ask me afterwards, but it's one of his books. I know that much. He, he writes the following. It was a crowded morning in Starbucks. I was standing with several customers who formed two parallel lines leading toward the counter. As my turn came to step forward and order coffee, the young man serving me smiled and said, Hey, how are you? For a number of years, I've been giving a particular response to that frequent question. I do it as a way of preaching the gospel to myself every day. I've also found it at times to be an effective opening for sharing the gospel with others. And so I used the words again that morning at Starbucks, better than I deserve. Immediately, the guy behind the counter began challenging my self-assessment. He was moved, I think, by compassion and a genuine concern that I was unreasonably deficient in my self-worth. Partway through the conversation, I turned to my right. The lady in the next line was staring at me with a, a look as if to say, I'd recommend decaf. In fact, the entire place seemed to be listening to my explanation. I concluded by simply telling the young man as I approached the point of tears, I'm a sinner and I need a savior. The conversation was ever so brief. When that moment was over, people around me seemed to gradually divorce themselves from what they had just heard, and they returned to whatever had earlier occupied their minds and hearts, still sadly unaware, I suspect, of how much they also needed a Savior, and unaware of what an unfathomable miracle it is that God allows their hearts to keep on beating. Oh, we need a Savior, a Savior. And today we are going to consider, ponder this Savior together by returning to John chapter 10 and by looking at one solitary verse. And if you have been paying any attention this morning, you will already know what this verse is in John chapter 10. Verse 11, where the Lord Jesus declares, I am the good shepherd. And what does the good shepherd do? The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He is our Savior. But to remind us of the context of that verse, let me read for you once again, beginning in John chapter 10, verse 1 right through to verse 21, just so that we can't be guilty of extracting this verse from its context, but interpret it and understand it in the setting in which we find it. And so the word of the Lord declares, John chapter 10, verse 1, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. 
To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock. One shepherd. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said these are not the words of one who was oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And so if you were here last Sunday, you'll remember that there's a very simple threefold division to this chapter. There is in the first six verses a figure of speech, an allegory, sheepfold, shepherd, stranger, sheep. And then there is a much needed explanation of the allegory, beginning in verse 7, right through to the end of verse 18. And then there is a response, verses 19, 20, and 21. And that's what we pondered last Sunday. And as I've already mentioned, what we're going to do today is jump right into the middle of the narrative and just just camp out on, if you like, verse 11 and extract everything we can from this wonderful declaration from the lips of the Lord Jesus, I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd lays down His life for the sheep. And what we have here is a description of Christ's death. And so what I want to do is is think about, meditate upon five truths concerning Christ's death that we find in this solitary statement in John chapter 10, 
verse 11. Again, five truths or five facts, if you like, concerning Christ's death. And, and, and they're, they're there, all packed into this verse, tightly packaged. So what I want to do is extract each one by one and pray that the Spirit of God will warm our hearts as we consider our great Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the first truth concerning Christ's death that is made plain in this verse is as follows. It is an extraordinary death. Christ's death is an extraordinary death. Why do I say that? Well, listen carefully to the words in the verse. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Who lays down his life? The good shepherd. Who is the good shepherd? The Lord Jesus Christ. Who is the Lord Jesus Christ? The only begotten of the Father. The one who later in this chapter will declare, I and my Father are one. The Good Shepherd is God's Son. And it is the eternal Son of God who lays down His life for His sheep. There is a remarkable statement tucked away in Romans Chapter 8, verse 32, which, I, which I, I pray will help us get our minds around the magnitude of this death, of this sacrifice. And there Paul says, God did not spare. God did not spare His own Son. I think there is an Old Testament context to that verse. That's true as we read the New Testament. We always have to ha- have one eye on the Old Testament. Because there are so many quotations, so many inferences, so many allusions that come from the Old Testament into the New Testament and form the thinking and the writing of the New Testament authors. And when Paul utters those words, God did not spare his own son, my mind immediately goes back to Genesis chapter 22. And there in Genesis 22... We hear God say to Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And Abraham obeys. And Abraham takes that child of promise. Abraham takes that child for whom he had yearned and prayed for years. And Abraham takes his beloved son to Mount Moriah, binds him to the altar, raises the knife, is ready to plunge that knife into his son. And God intervenes and declares, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld or you have not spared your son, your only son, from me. Just as Abraham did not spare his only son, his beloved son, 
so too God the Father did not spare. He did not withhold. He did not spare his only son, his beloved son. Enter into the thought even more. Enter into that verse even more and break it down. Break it down and ponder the words and the significance of the words. First of all, God didn't spare. He didn't spare him. What does that mean? It means he did not withhold one drop of his wrath. It means that when the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, was on Calvary's cross, I don't think we grasp the full significance of this. There was no mercy for Christ. God did not spare him. He did not withhold anything from his son. There was a going forth. There was, dare I say, a gushing forth of the wrath of God and the judgment of God upon his beloved son. One commentator in this regard writes, the fullest manifestation of the curse is found in Christ's cry from the cross about being forsaken. To be cursed of God is to be forsaken by God. And Christ's cry was not merely an expression of disillusionment or an imagined sense of forsakenness. No, for Christ to complete His work of redemption, He actually had to be forsaken. He had to receive the curse of the Father in His own person. The Father had to turn His back on His only begotten Son. The Father had to cover His face and not let Jesus see the light of His countenance. God didn't spare Him. No mercy, but full and awful judgment falling squarely upon the head of Christ. At Calvary's cross. But enter into that verse even more. God didn't spare who? He didn't spare his own son. You think of the angels. They are God's sons by virtue of creation. We think of the saints, believers. We are God's sons by virtue of regeneration, by virtue of adoption. But when we, 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 when we speak of Christ, we are, we are speaking of one who is God's Son by nature. Co-equal with the Father. Co-eternal with the Father. Co-essential of one substance, one essence with the Father. We, 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 are, now, we are now pondering the one who is the Father's delight, the one concerning whom the Father can declare, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. But he did not spare him. God heard Naaman. You remember the story of Naaman? God heard Naaman when he cried for healing. God heard Hannah when she cried for a child. God heard Hagar when she cried for help in the wilderness. God heard the Ninevites when they cried for mercy. 
God heard Elijah when he cried for help during his hour of desperation. But when the Lord Jesus Christ cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There is deafening silence. There's no cry. There's no response. There's no reaction. There is but silence, deafening silence, resounding silence, pointing to what? That during that dark hour, at that dark moment, the Father had withdrawn all favor. The Father had hidden His countenance from His Son. As His Son becomes a curse, as His Son becomes a sin-bearer, This is, friends, this is an extraordinary death. This is a mind-boggling death that the Good Shepherd would lay down His life and that Almighty God would not spare His Son. The second truth concerning this death that comes out of this verse is simply this. It is a voluntary death. Look at the verse. I am the good shepherd, says the Lord Jesus. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This is where the allegory falls apart. We do need to be a little careful as we read scripture. And we enter into the realm of allegories, figures of speech, typology, parables. Because if we press them too hard, they invariably fall apart. We're meant to extract basic truths, simple truths from them, but if we go too far, they they, they begin to lose any semblance one with the other. And so too, when it comes to this this allegory, this, this idea of a shepherd laying down his life for the sheep, because when you think of a normal shepherd, a a mere shepherd uh, dying, trying to protect his sheep, we really can't compare that, can we? To the Lord Jesus laying down His life for His sheep. Christ's death for starters is is victorious. His death for His sheep secures their salvation. If a mere shepherd dies trying trying to protect his sheep, dies protecting his sheep against a a, a robber, or dies trying to protect his sheep against a, a, a wolf, we don't call that victorious, do we? Uh, once the shepherd is dead, he's out of, out of the way, and it is open season on the sheep. Similarly, when we think of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ in this allegory, we need to remember that Christ's death is, is but temporary. When a, when a normal shepherd in the everyday life, if he were to die for his sheep, uh, that's not a temporary death. He's not coming back. It's permanent. And so too, when we, when we, Enter into this allegory. We must remember that Christ's death is a voluntary death. Yes, a regular shepherd, a human shepherd may, may engage an enemy, may engage a thief, may engage a bear in order to protect his sheep, may fight against that individual or that animal willingly. But he does not willingly lay down his life. He goes down swinging. He goes down fighting. He goes down resisting. But here's the truth we are are, are meant to get and understand in this verse. 
That when the Lord Jesus dies for his sheep, it is not something that merely happens to him. Rather, it is something he enters into. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This isn't merely an experience that happens to Christ. This is an event that Christ himself has orchestrated. And this is an event that Christ himself embraces. Remember years ago, I think maybe grade three, grade four, or fourth grade, third grade, as we say here. Fourth grade, I think it was. And our teacher, my teacher, decided to read for us. I don't think she'd be able to do it today. C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And I remember her reading that book, and, and I remember finding that book her reading of that book to us, frustrating. Frustrating for a couple of reasons. One, she would always stop reading in the, in the, in the worst possible places. She'd bring you to that point of suspension and close the book, enough for today, to tomorrow. Extremely frustrating. But what I also found frustrating about that book was when it came time for Aslan to be offered on that altar and the witch has her day and her minions have their day. And Aslan is dragged, bound to the altar and sacrificed. And I remember in the third grade, fourth grade, what was I, eight years old, nine years old, I remember finding that so frustrating. He's a lion. Why doesn't he do something? The very least, why doesn't he roar? I, I remember being troubled by this. I remember actually staying awake thinking about this. It, it, it was something because the, the, the narrative and the picture is so intense. And when we think of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, we miss a great deal if we fail to perceive his willingness in going to the cross. This is not something that was forced on him. This is not something that he was obligated to do. It was not something that he could not have rescued himself from if he had so desired. No, what we have here at Calvary's cross is a willing Savior dying willingly, laying down his life intentionally, purposefully, with the design of saving his sheep. The death, the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ is a voluntary death. Look at what he says in verse 17. He makes it perfectly clear. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. It is a voluntary death. The third characteristic of this death, it is a necessary death. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the Sheep. And Chris quoted Isaiah 53 at least twice in the opening. All we, just like sheep, what have we done? 
we have gone astray. And as sheep, we find ourselves in utter darkness, a state of helplessness and hopelessness. We find ourselves lost. Why? Because of our own sinfulness. I know, I know it, 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 is not, it is not a truth. It is not a thing that, that most people perceive or are even willing to acknowledge. You go back to that narrative of C.J. Mahaney as he stands there in Starbucks and the, and the young fellow behind the counter asks him, hey, how's it going? And his response, not too well, better than I actually what? Deserve. What's wrong with you? Poor self-image, low self-esteem. No, simply a man who is conscious, simply a man who is perfectly aware of his sinfulness before a holy God, and therefore a man perfectly aware of his need of a Savior. This death is a necessary death. Why? Because the sheep are lost, completely lost, hopelessly lost, and most of them don't even realize it. And they are lost. Why? Because of their utter sinfulness. John Murray writes, far too frequently, far too frequently we fail to entertain the gravity of this fact. The reality of our sin. And the reality of the wrath of God upon us for our sin. They don't really enter into our reckoning. This is the reason why the gospel does not ring the bells in the innermost depths of our spirit. And this is the reason why the gospel is to such an extent a meaningless sound in the world. And dare I say, even in the church of the 20th century, we are not filled with a profound sense of the reality of God, of his holiness and sin. I've reckoned with it all is little more than a misfortune or a maladjustment. Sin is far more serious than that. Sin is an offense in the sight of a holy God. And because of their sin, the sheep are lost. And the only way to bring them back The only way to redeem them, ransom them from their sin is by the death of the shepherd, the death of the Savior. It is a most absolute necessary death. The fourth characteristic of this death, still in verse 11, it is a satisfactory death. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life, his life for the sheep, a satisfactory death. By that, I mean that the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ is an atoning sacrifice. It satisfies God's offended justice. It satisfies God's wrath. As Paul says in Romans chapter 3, God has set forth His Son. He has set forth, or He has displayed His Son as a propitiation in His blood. 
And so the end of Christ's death isn't merely to set a good example for us. It isn't to demonstrate how much Jesus loves us. The grand design and the chief purpose of Christ's death and Christ's sacrifice is to propitiate. It is to satisfy an offended God. It is to atone for our sin. When we think of atonement, it's so important that we remember there are three essential components to atonement. When it comes to an atonement, an offense must be taken away. What is the offense? It's your sin and my sin. When it comes to atonement, an offended person must be satisfied. Who's been offended by us? God. And when it comes to atonement, a sacrifice must be made for the offense and for the offender. And who is that sacrifice? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. He lays down his life for the sheep. And he does so not to merely set an example for them, not to demonstrate selflessness, not to say, hey, here's the extent to which I love you, that I'm prepared to die for you, No, when the Lord Jesus lays down his life at Calvary's cross, he does so to atone for sin, to satisfy an offended God. Now, that isn't popular at all today. I don't know if you're aware of that. Most of you probably are. Such a notion of atonement, uh, many people find it quite offensive, downright unpalatable. Why? Because they object to this idea of God's wrath. They object to this idea that God is angry. Now, please understand, when I say that God is angry, I don't mean He's angry like you and I get angry. We get angry, why? Because things don't go our way and we throw a tissy fit. We become impatient or whatever. We get angry. Well, if we transfuse that idea of anger to God, we've, we've just made a huge mistake. No, when we speak of God's anger, we are referring to His righteous indignation towards sinners. A perfect God has given a perfect law. A holy God has given a holy law. And a holy God rightfully expects to be obeyed. We have not obeyed Him. We've disobeyed Him in countless ways. Therefore, God is angry with us. I know we're not supposed to say that today. We are by nature children of wrath. You've seen it in your care groups, haven't you? In Ephesians 2. What does that mean? It means we are the objects of God's wrath. We are the objects of God's anger because of our sin. God's anger must be turned away. How can we turn away God's anger? He's angry because His justice has been offended because of our sin. Well, The only way in which we can turn God's anger, wrath away from us, is through the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ who has paid the penalty for our sin on our behalf. Oh, I pray that we grasp that here this morning. I know there's 
There is so much confusion surrounding the cross and the days in which we live. So many confusing ideas and notions as to why the Lord Jesus died at Calvary's cross. Uh, Much of evangelicalism today, I don't know if people realize it or not, but much of evangelicalism today has bought into what's known as the, the moral influence theory. Moral influence theory of the atonement. What's that? It's the idea that, uh, that basically the purpose of, of the cross is to uh, make us feel sorry for Jesus. The purpose of the crucifixion is to, to break our hearts. It, it is to show us the extent of his love and selflessness. And in seeing his physical suffering, it, it, it is to stir in us this emotional response and empathy for the Lord Jesus called the moral influence theory of the atonement. And I suppose, I'm going to go down a road here, and uh, I may wish I hadn't because I might not be able to find my way back again, but I suppose that's why many of the dramas and movies depicting Christ's death, Christ's crucifixion, strike such a popular chord with people. Because oftentimes, they completely misrepresent the atonement and the purpose of his death And simply the goal of the drama, at times even sermons, the goal is simply to make us pity Jesus. And if we can evoke that kind of response, that is then labeled faith. Remember the words of Christ on the way to Calvary. Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Wow. Weep for yourselves. And for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. If all the cross does, if all that Christ's suffering does, is make us feel sorry for him, we've completely misunderstood what transpired at the cross. The purpose of the cross is to atone for sin. It is to appease the wrath of an offended God. And it is at the cross that the Good Shepherd lays down his life. Yes, we should be moved, as we have sung already this morning, we should be moved by Christ's love for us, which led him to lay down his life on our behalf. Yes, we should be moved by his suffering. Do not misunderstand me, but I do hope and pray that our understanding of the cross goes well beyond that. To those hours of darkness. When Christ became a curse for us. I need to be very careful here. Even when it comes to Christ's physical suffering. The scourging and the nails and the crown of thorns. That is not what made atonement for us, brothers and sisters. That's an example of man's wrath. And of man's hatred of the Lord Jesus. And of Satan's final temptation to turn Christ back from the cross. 
Christ's atonement is made on the cross. It's when the Father turns His countenance away and He bears, Christ bears that solitary figure, bears the wrath of an offended God. An extraordinary death. But a very purposeful death designed to make satisfaction for sinners. The fifth mark of this death, still in John 10, verse 11, in case you were wondering, the fifth mark of this death, it is a substitutionary sacrifice. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Who are the sheep? Just turn back for a moment to John 6. I'm not going to jump around a lot, but just a couple of verses that I believe will help us. John 6, 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Back to John 10. We read something very similar in verse 29. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. One more reference. Christ's high priestly prayer. Chapter 17. And again, we read something very similar. Verse 9. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. In John chapter 10, verses 14 through 16, we find that word know four times. I know my sheep. My sheep know me. There is this union between shepherd and sheep. Between Christ and his his bride between the Savior and His people. It is a a union. It is a union that that we must get our our minds around. This isn't, friends, this isn't a a, a subject. This isn't an issue that should cause us consternation. It most certainly shouldn't be a point of controversy and debate. It is designed to encourage us. It is designed to bring us great comfort. Comfort. That when the Lord Jesus died at Calvary's cross, it was not any mere hypothetical atonement. It was an atonement. He laid down His life for His sheep. And He became a a curse for His sheep. And my sin most certainly was reckoned to Him. And He paid the penalty of my sin in full. Listen to these words carefully. The efficacy or the effectiveness of Christ's atonement is founded upon the union that exists between Christ and His people. Or as John Flavel states it, before this world was ever made, then, God's delight was in us. While as yet we had no existence, but only in the infinite mind and purpose of God. 
Oh, friend, if you're discouraged as a believer, downtrodden, there is no greater truth that you must get your mind and heart around than the believer's union with Christ and of Christ's priestly work on behalf of his sheep. When we think of Christ's priestly work, so what he does on behalf of his bride, the church, please understand it begins at the moment of his incarnation. At the moment of Christ's birth, throughout his earthly sojourn, as our priest, on our behalf, on my behalf, he did what I could never do. He lived a perfect life. And he loved God with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his mind, with all his strength. He fulfilled all righteousness. He fulfilled the law. He perfectly obeyed God. There's the righteousness I'm after. There's the righteousness I want. The righteousness of my priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. Not my own righteousness. I have nothing I can bring before a holy God. I need His righteousness. If ever I am to stand in the presence of an offended God. But not only did He live His life on my behalf as my priest. He then died on my behalf. He offered up himself. Here is his priestly work. And by shedding his blood and by giving his life, he paid the penalty for my sin. Now, here's where we make a huge mistake oftentimes as Christians. We stop there. It's done. That's Christ's work. Over and done. Not so. His priestly work continues, continues to this day, and will continue forever. Because you see, as my priest, he has now entered into heaven itself. He now stands before God himself. He is united to me in my humanity by virtue of the incarnation. I am one with him because he has taken hold of me by the Holy Spirit. And there stands the Lord Jesus Christ, a perfect man, a man who has paid the penalty for my sin. There he stands in the very presence of God. What's he doing? Still functioning as a priest. He's interceding on behalf of his sheep. And that's why you probably noticed, I don't know how much you pondered it, but there in Ephesians 2, where Paul inserts that wondrous thought that, yeah, we've been made alive together in Christ, right? And we've been raised up with Christ, right? And what's the next statement? And we have been seated with Christ. Where? In the heavenly places. Ponder these things. Ponder Christ's priesthood and the work that he has accomplished on our behalf, not merely at the cross, but the work that he now effects for us before God's throne, thereby guaranteeing our salvation. Thereby guaranteeing to us for all eternity the application of what he accomplished at Calvary's cross. And that's why Paul can declare in Romans 8.33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? There you are. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Now listen carefully to these words. Christ Jesus is the one who died. 
more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. We cannot divide Christ's priestly work. We can't divvy it up and and separate it. No, our salvation and the certainty of our salvation and our confidence concerning what Christ accomplished at Calvary's cross and its application to us rests on his continuing eternal work as our priest in the very presence of God. I find that extremely encouraging. My sin, my failures, my shortcomings. Praise God, I'm not looking at me. I'm looking at my priest. My inability to obey. My disobedience day after day. My struggle with this, my struggle with that. But praise God, I'm not looking at me. I'm looking at my priest. I'm looking at the one who lived a perfect life for me and in whose righteousness I now stand. I am looking at the one who paid the penalty for my sin at Calvary's cross. I am now looking to the one who is in the presence of God, who lives forevermore to do what? To make intercession on my behalf. You see, it was a substitutionary death, a substitutionary death. Christ laid down his life for His sheep. What should be our response this morning? If you're following along in your bulletin worship guide, you'll notice four blank lines at the bottom. And so let me suggest a fourfold response to this marvelous death and these words of the Lord Jesus in John 10, 11. The first is this. We should respond in repentance. If you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, You must repent of your sin and come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, friend, if you're not a believer, when you ponder this extraordinary death and when you consider what happened at Calvary's cross, what what do you think about that? Uh, What what do you make of that? What, what, What do you consider as happening there, as having happened? And what do you think when you hear that God's wrath was there poured out for sinners? What do you think when you hear that God's judgment fell upon the Lord Jesus Christ? What what do you think is in store for those who dare to despise such an extraordinary death? And reject the Lord Jesus Christ. No, as we ponder the death and the sacrifice of Christ this morning, if you are not a Christian, there is but one response. It is to repent of your sin. And it is to believe in Christ for the salvation of your soul. As William Cooper writes, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. and Sinners plunged beneath that flood Lose all their guilty stains. The second response, surely as believers we should worship this morning. As we consider Christ's death. Samuel Davies, the hymn writer, great God of wonders. 
All thy ways display thine attributes divine. But the bright glories of thy grace above thine other wonders shine. And surely we have caught a glimpse of God's grace toward us this morning. And what a motive to worship him. Thirdly, we should respond in humility. And this is a humbling experience to stand at the foot of the cross. And we might well join with Isaac Watts in singing, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Lord of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. And lastly, we should respond in service. As we consider the shepherd's death on our behalf, again, Isaac Watts. Thus might I hide my blushing face while his dear cross appears. Dissolve my heart in thankfulness and melt my eyes to tears. The drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Dear Lord, I give myself away. And that is all that I. Can do. Repentance, worship, humility, and service. As we seek to worship in heart and in deed this morning, in response to this great death, in response to this great shepherd who has given his life for his sheep.